Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our new membership model. Simply go to AmericanPurpose.com forward slash join. Coming up on the show today, Ariel Ezrachi and Maurice E. Stuckey, author of the new book, How Big Tech Barons Smash Innovation and How to Strike Back. Uh, welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So congratulations uh, on the book. Uh, and who are these big tech barons? So I'll, I'll start with it. So the, the big tech barons are the ones that control ecosystems. And what got us started on this was the European Commission asked us to look at innovation in the digital economy. And we, like many others, were sanguine. We thought that, you know, despite the problems that, you know, elsewhere, that innovation was um, blossoming in the digital economy. And once we started digging into the data, though, we weren't as optimistic. In fact, we became more concerned. And we published in our report for the commission and and we thought, you know, it's going to end up on some shelf gathering dust. But we started hearing from other members of the European Commission and they were then relating additional concerns. And then we did additional research and that prompted the book. And what we realized is that in the digital economy, there's a saying that apps are worth millions and platforms are worth billions. But no one really talks about those that control ecosystems. And ecosystems don't control just billions. They're quasi-sovereigns that they own several platforms that interconnect. And as a result, they attract a lot of users, a lot of users' attention, and also their data. And as a result, it's like a fiefdom that they um, can control. They set the rules, they determine who can be in the ecosystem, who gets kicked out, and they also determine what are the conditions to compete within this ecosystem. So they're, they, when you look at their profits, they exceed the GDP of most countries. I mean, it's, it's interesting, I mean, that you talk about the ecosystems there. I, I wonder why does that necessarily block innovation that you think, for example, of the way that Zoom was able to, to uh, innovate during the pandemic in a way that left, say, something like Google Meet uh, absolutely for dead, or in an earlier example, even though Microsoft was ubiquitous in the world of search engines, Google was able to completely supersede them. What, why is it that, that the ecosystems block innovation? So that's, that's an excellent question because it highlights the changes that we see in the digital environment. Uh, whereas in the past, what we had were platforms that could have been very successful. What we see now is that those, those platforms leverage market power to neighboring markets and they grow. And because of network effects, because of their ability to connect users, sellers, advertisers. This creates an environment where we all congregate. And once you have those environments, this gives the controllers of the environment the power to determine to some extent what it is that we see, who gets access to the environment. And more than that, in the book, we also discuss how it affects decisions as to funding, uh, 
as to uh, companies choosing their innovation paths even outside the ecosystems. Now, we do not argue that there is an absolute control. There will always be some disruption. But what we show is that as we move into a highly concentrated environment where you have a handful of ecosystems, we're starting to lose on the diversity of innovation. And those ecosystems benefit from power that enable them to quash a lot of disruptors. To give you an example, just for this to be uh, more tangible, think, for example, about payment systems. You might have an excellent idea for an online payment system. You might have invested millions in your new startup. And you have something which is really innovative and to which there is demand. But if you are unable to get that payment system to be endorsed by users, then you have no future, you have no scale. And if companies that control the app stores can determine that your payment system cannot be used for in-app purchases, or can determine that there is friction between us, the users, and your payment system, that is the end of your innovation. So whereas most of us often have a feeling of autonomy, we have a feeling that we're just walking in an online environment where we can choose freely whether to turn right or left, the reality is that we do walk on a path that is very carefully designed for us. And on that path, there is often no entry to disruptors that could affect the profit line of the barons that control the ecosystem. And it, it seems to me that that part of the the significance of, of this finding is also the direction of travel that, you know, I think that uh, those of us who remember the 90s and, the, and the, the sense that perhaps this digital revolution would be a utopia, uh, you describe now that there is the potential for dystopia. And, and some of the implications really are quite um, stark that uh, you talk about AI that will be able to decode our emotions and our feelings, uh, literally making windows into people's souls. So the, uh, the 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 sense of these tech barons being able to control that kind of environment, this is pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, that what we point to is that once an ecosystem can affect the path of innovation, it's likely going to support innovation that will help sustain its market power. So you'll still get innovation, but it'll be innovation that might improve behavioral advertising. It won't change behavioral advertising or threaten behavioral advertising, but it will likely enhance the ability to manipulate um, behavior. So what's the frontier? It's It used to be that behavioral advertising was pitched to us as getting us more relevant ads. But it's far beyond that. It's not only just predicting behavior, it's being able to manipulate behavior. So when you start looking at the patents and the technologies that are coming out, it involves first deciphering emotions and then predicting emotional states, and then eventually it will be manipulating emotions. And once you then add the incentives that underlie this ecosystem for behavioral advertising to get you to buy things that you might not otherwise wanted to have purchased at the highest price that you're willing to pay. And then you couple it with virtual reality. 
And the ability of technology soon to be able to decode your thoughts. Then imagine all of the concerns that we have about Facebook and Instagram that was revealed from the Wall Street Journal files about how Instagram is sparking depression amongst teenagers, causing suicidal thoughts. And then you transport it to the metaverse that's largely going to be dominated by you know, the big tech barons. It becomes truly frightening. Yeah, exa exactly as you say in the introduction to the book, that th there are really big implications for us in terms of our privacy, our autonomy, and our mental health. Absolutely. And and the thing is that is also what we talk about is that, I, I mean, I had this discussion with my um, younger son and his friend yesterday. We were driving back from um, rowing. And one of the things is, well, what if I just avoid... Google? What if I just delete my Facebook account? What if I um, no longer become a prime member? And can't I then avoid a lot of these harms? And what Ariel and I talk about in our book is the ripple effects of these toxic innovations, that you might avoid Facebook, but the the rancor, the tribalism, the, the you know the the, lo, the you know the loss in trust that is fueled by Facebook and the algorithms, that's going to impact you. So you might try to avoid Facebook, but the harms from Facebook will follow you. There's going to likely affect your friends. It's going to affect your children, and then that's going to affect you as well. And it's not only just affecting you in terms of your well-being, but it's also going to affect our democracy. And we already have seen the effects that these algorithms have on our democracy as our book explores. And the remarkable thing is that these companies are aware of the effects, that Facebook in its internal files recognize that political parties around the world were changing their messaging to become more negative in order for that message to spread further on Facebook's algorithms. So they're fully aware of the effects that their um, ecosystems are having on our democracy. But ultimately, you look at what the value chain is, how they make their money, it's not going to stop. And it, it seems pretty clear that states and, and supranational bodies like the European Union, they're aware of those uh, of those complications and dangers too. It, it struck me when I was reading the book that the problem really is that we have essentially a 20th century framework for this new 21st century digital environment. Yes. So I, I think the problem, the problem begins, uh, first of all, with um, the ideology and the understanding of, of markets. It is true that uh, on both sides of the Atlantic and in many jurisdictions, uh, there is now a realization that something needs to be done when we deal with digital markets, uh, that uh, market power is a problem. So all these elements uh, have been acknowledged and indeed you see changes in antitrust enforcement and you also see changes when it comes to proposals for legislation. But focus primarily on the issue of innovation. I say that when you talk about innovation, this is still an area where many jurisdictions assume 
that innovation will just happen. That innovation is something that happens organically. And the point we make in the book is that if you take a quantitative approach to innovation and all you do is be impressed by the numbers, by the fact that some of those big tech barons invest millions and billions in innovation, then you might reach the wrong conclusion that we as society benefit. But once you move beyond the numbers, once you look at the quality of innovation, once you look at the nature of innovation, and once you look at who are those who really innovate and who are those that just use their deep pockets to block disruption and purchase those who might disrupt them, you start to realize that there is an actual cost that we pay for putting our trust in a handful of big tech barons. So when it comes to innovation, it is not only that our framework is inadequate to deal with some of the problems that we raise, it is also that there is still an ideological and possibly regulatory capture that leads some policymakers to still believe that those companies are the, uh, the future and those companies are the ones that will deliver future prosperity, whereas what we show is that actually, while those companies invest heavily in innovation, they also dampen plenty of innovation and block a lot of innovation that is essential for our future prosperity. So one of the, the things that you say in the book is that we should be rooting for what you describe as the pirates. Um, in many ways, that sounds counterintuitive, but who are the pirates and why should we be rooting for them? Right. So the, the tech pirates is a term that we use for those that create disruptive innovation that add value. So we often think about innovation as having value, right? So why it's almost synonymous that something is innovative. The assumption is that it creates value, but not all innovations create value, that innovations can extract value. So it just shifts money from one group to another. And it can also destroy overall value that by destroying well-being. And then the other way to look at innovation is to look at it as either being disruptive or sustaining. Now, sustaining innovation can add value, but it's basically helping improve products that already exist. And that can create some value, but greater value can be had when you have a disruptive innovation. And the thing about the tech pirates is that those are entities that create disruptive innovation that has the potential to unleash significant value. And you could see this, for example, Clay Christensen talks about the disruptors and how they were typically outside of the current um, uh, value chain. And in our book, we look then, as Ariel pointed out, you know, who are the tech pirates? And often you hear like, well, you know, Apple is a tech pirate, right? Because Apple famously had the pirate flag when it was developing Macintosh. And at that time, it was a disruptor. But eventually what happens then is as their power increases and as their ecosystem expands, most of the innovations then go about just sustaining the current value chain. So you might, for example, get a change in how you search and Google might promote, let's say through Hey Google, 
that you're going to shift from searching on your keyboard or on your phone to searching by voice. But that's really a sustaining innovation because Google will still capture most of the value from search advertising. The ones who are the true disruptors, and they don't often know that the, the full potential of the, the disruptiveness of their technology are those that operate outside the value chain, offer something different, they're not catering necessarily to the current customers, and then what they offer then takes hold and shifts the entire value chain um, to, a, to, to a new uh, value chain, basically. Yeah, one of the one of the nice things about this book is that you make it clear that there is no silver bullet for dealing with these things, but you do offer three principles. Value that you discuss there is one of them. Incentives and uh, and diversity are the are the two others. But uh, the thing that really struck me in reading this and and that in many ways encapsulates those three principles is this prioritization for plurality. That essentially it seems to me that what you're arguing is that. That the, the collision of ideas is the is is a good thing in and of itself. Oh, definitely so. Um, we have to appreciate that. So let let me start actually by by highlighting these these three principles, because what we try to do is give us policymakers and and politicians um, some focal points that would enable them to move from existing regulation an existing way in which they look at innovation to appreciate uh, the full dimensions of innovation. So value deals with the fact that some innovation doesn't generate value. Incentive deals with the value chain, with the profit motive, because we believe that if you understand what drives the strategies of those big tech barons, then you can provide remedies that are relatively minimal, but can have a very significant benefit to society. And diversity is there because without diversity, what will happen is that we will only have the innovation that serves the existing ecosystems. And in doing so, we as society uh, will be losing on all the opportunities of the future. And this is something really significant. There is an example. We don't mention that in the book, but I often discuss it with um, with my students and this is the story of Baghdad and there is a story about how Baghdad was the center of science of innovation and one of the reasons that in those days in those golden age golden in the golden age of innovation it was such a successful place was that it was an open environment where you had people from various religions that came together. And this is where we had the origins of astronomy, math, <clears throat> philosophy, and all these changes were the result of diversity, of different people meeting together and ideas being discussed and appreciated. And what happened at some point was that because of cultural changes and religious changes, that diversity uh, was stopped. Basically, there was a process uh, following which it was not allowed for certain uh, individuals to travel into Baghdad. Certain ideas were basically uh, restricted. And what happened was that the intellectual center just shifted from there to other areas around the globe. 
But if you take that story, which is just an historic story, and you uh, think of it now and think about our current innovation framework, it can tell you a lot about where we stand. If what we do is only allow for innovation that is only driven by a very specific value chain, we are losing on all those interactions that we all would benefit from. Yeah, that's that's fascinating using that example of Baghdad because it again this is something that you discuss in the book in terms of the digital revolution as well that uh, you say that for example that it's not so much Google or Apple but the San Francisco Bay area that was crucial to that digital revolution something similar for Seattle with Microsoft and and Amazon that these kind of clusters in these open diverse very plural places at very specific times are absolutely crucial for the kind of innovation uh, that you're that you've been talking about in the book. Yeah, that that was one of the most surprising findings that we had. Now, Ariel and I have been involved in antitrust for over 20 years each, and we've been to innumerable conferences. And one of the the areas of consensus in competition policy is the importance of innovation. I don't think any economist will will seriously dispute that dynamic efficiencies are far greater than, let's say, lower prices because of the value that that can generate and also in helping us address our current problems that we rely on innovation. But no one ever talked about cities. You never heard cities as an incubator of innovation. And so one of the nice things about writing is that you, when you're doing your research, you come across these um, interesting data points that haven't really warranted attention within your field. And you wonder, why is that? Is this just quackery? But there was a, uh, a study done by Joffrey West in his book, Scale. And one of the things that he pointed out was that when cities double in size, the number of patents just don't double. They actually increase by generally 1.15%. Whereas when companies double in size, they'll produce more innovation, but it generally is less than 100%. So companies scale sublinearly, where a city scale superlinearly. And you wonder, why is that the case? Why is it that as cities get bigger, they become more innovative? And no one really has, has the answer to that. But then we looked also at the business literature and we looked at regional economic uh, clusters and we found something similar that regional economic clusters that were more diverse were generally more durable and they offer more innovation. So there's some positive externalities that happen in cities. And it might be, for example, I mean, you think about um, um, a playwright bumping into an artist like Edward Munk, for example, um, did work for Ibsen on the plays. And you have this sort of collaboration between the two and you have this collision. And that's what's also happening then in cities is that there's this collision of different fields coming together and you have then new ideas that are sparked as a result. So everyone focuses on innovation. They think, oh, let's invest in companies. Let's compete against one another to attract Amazon to be in our city because that will unleash innovation when in fact it's not necessarily Amazon, it's the infrastructure that a city can provide in 
in spurring innovation. And we don't fully understand it, but we thought that if we can get that on the table for policymakers, that could be a significant improvement in policy. Yeah, and, and part of what you're trying to explore in the book seems to me to be how to optimise cities and those regional clusters. And, you know, that there clearly seems to be some kind of shift going on to Austin, Texas, to Miami, Florida at the moment. You know, I, I wonder what do you think that means? Why is that happening? And and does it does it have something to do with the fact that these are probably two of the most diverse regions in the United States. So so what's interesting is once you see that cities scale, that generally cities will do, you know, as they as their population doubles, you should expect to have more than double of the, the patents. But one thing that Joffrey West points out is that some cities outperform others relative to their size. So it's the same thing with weightlifting. That someone who is, let's say, 300 pounds, six foot four, you can expect them to lift more weight than someone who's five foot two and weighs, let's say, 140 pounds. But really, is how much weight are they expected to lift relative to their size? And what what, what Jeffrey West pointed out is that, in terms of this, some cities underperform and other cities overperform, and we don't really know why. So one of the, what, what we hope as a result of the book is that there will be further research to understand, for example, why Austin is, first of all, Austin, as it's gaining in population, is it scaling to the extent that it's underperforming or overperforming relative to its size? So that's question number one. And if it's underperforming or overperforming, why is that? Why is it like Boise? Why is like Salt Lake City or Provo? Why is it that some cities, if they're overperforming, what are some of the characteristics that, that lead to that? And in a way, once you realize the impact that cities can have, you can then realize that there are benefits outside of the traditional hubs like San Jose, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, or Miami, that you could have, for example, not far from Bard University, you think about the renaissance of the Hudson Valley and the changes that have happened since the pandemic with people moving up to the Hudson Valley. Will that have an impact on innovation as you know? You look at um, 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 some of the towns that were heavy industrialized and then lost a significant amount of population but are now attracting and you know attracting companies and then the impact that local universities such as Bard might be having on those innovation clusters around um, 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 the towns uh, in the Hudson Valley so that 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 could be quite exciting as well, I mean, you say towards the end of the book that that history teaches us that plurality and openness are vital for innovation and prosperity. I mean, you mentioned the the pandemic as as an example. That I wondered whether uh, vaccine rollout was a, a another good example of the kind of innovation that you're talking about, and particularly the the British model, for example, I think was generally considered to be more successful than the EU model, precisely because it did what you suggest in the book. It invested 
invested in a, a wide range of projects. It didn't try to game the system. It just put the money into lots of different uh, projects and, and said, okay, let's see what works. Is that, is, is that an example of the kind of plurality in action that, uh, that you're talking about in the book, do you think? So it, it, it could be one, one example of the value of, of diversity. Um, I think there, there, there is a way to think of it when, when you try to think of how, how we develop research or what happens at universities. And let's link it back to the, the big tech barons, for example. So if you think about those companies with very deep pockets, what they will often do is they will uh, get in touch with universities. They will offer to fund certain type of research. And that type of research, uh, because it is funded, will focus on issues that those companies want to advance. And what we start to see is that something which generally is very positive, we all benefit from that injection of funding. But what you start to see is that it actually reduces the diversity of study and innovation, because what it creates is multiple universities where researchers are working on very specific issues that are of interest to those companies and are not working on other issues. So the problem when you put your money and you gamble on those giants as the engines for innovation is that not only this affects what they do, they create this ripple effects where it affects the type of research that others do. It affects the types of patents that are registered. It therefore affects the type of rights that we as society have and the type of rights that are basically owned by those companies. And this is the future. At the moment, the future is very much concentrated around them. Um, there is a very uh, interesting research by uh, Celia Ripak that looks, for example, on how those companies are extremely successful in monetizing research that they collaborated or created with universities. So whereas the research is done in collaboration, once the papers are published, all the commercialization and the profit uh, tend to go to those companies. So that's the problem with, that we have when your model is assuming that these are the engines for innovation and simply give them the benefit. And the benefit can be tax credits or can be subsidies that are poured, in, poured into them. Contrast this with the approach you mentioned, uh, the COVID-19 vaccine. Contrast this with an approach that actually champion plurality, where you look at various universities and you try to create an engine for change in as many research hubs as possible. The difference here is that the government has to take a stand. The government has a role to play in trying to promote this plurality, whereas in the, the image that, I, um, that we have, where you have single companies advancing innovation, the government pretends that it is not taking a role uh, in the market. It basically steer away from the market. But in fact, what it does, it just leaves the market to a handful of companies that determine the paths for innovation. So within your question, there is a really interesting issue, a policy issue on what is the role of the government. And many times when Maurice and I speak with policymakers, especially in the US, they have the idea that if they don't do anything, 
then they actually leave the decision to the free market. And what they forget is that in many markets, what they have is a market that is no longer free. It is a market that is dominated by companies. So all they have done is replace the state as the sovereign with a handful of companies that act as the sovereign. So it's a question of ideology and where do you see the role of the state and how the state can promote plurality that eventually will benefit us as society. And finally, and perhaps this is a question uh, that you could both answer, I mean, sometimes it's described as us being in a, a, an existential crisis over uh, the digital revolution. Um, so really, I wondered whether you are still optimistic for the future. It might not be the utopia, perhaps, that uh, we dreamed of, but, but do you think we will avoid the dystopia, or are we, in fact, already in it? <laughs> so, I mean, from the it from the U.S. perspective, it can appear quite bleak because Europe seems to be moving ahead. That they are now um, have legislated the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act. They're going to have the Data Act. Um, other countries are also enacting uh, regulatory reform, um, including Australia, South Korea. And it seems that the United States, you know, we we had bipartisan legislation that was offered and it actually has support by the majority of, of, of Americans. And yet it's just languishing on the House and Senate floor that there are steps that policymakers in the U.S. can take. They already have legislation that's been proposed. And even the prompting by John Oliver in, in a show that he had encouraging members of Congress, particularly um, Senator Schumer and, and, and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, to, to take action, that there is this window of opportunity and why haven't they acted? So it can seem really depressing. And it could be also, you know, along the lines of the polls that we see now that most Americans feel that America is heading in the wrong direction. Most of them feel that the opportunities for their children will be fewer than for them, and that we're no longer going to have this sort of American dream where you're going to hope that your children do as well, if not better, than, than what you did. And we can just accept it and say, all right, this is sort of the state of affairs. But we don't. And the, the, the key analogy, I would say, would be the Berlin Wall, that it was just such a fabric. It was such a a part of society for so many years, that people just accepted this wall and this division and that it was going to be what their children would likely face until one day it wasn't there. It was there and then the next day it wasn't. I remember we were, my wife and I were in Berlin when the wall came down and it wasn't like this orchestrated movement. It didn't involve like numerous political parties. It really was just the will of the people. And we talked about this in competition overdose, about how one or two individuals can have a profound change, that they can have a positive ripple effect. So I think once, particularly in America, is, is it, you don't have to accept the status quo. Understand, I mean, most Americans intuitively feel that something is not right with the digital economy. It's not working to their benefit. Our book, helps explain why. And it also can help then spark the debate that we don't have to accept this, but 
Change will only happen if we demand it. And we'll only demand it if we're fully apprised of the full ramifications. And we don't have to accept the last bit by the, um, the last bit of propaganda that, oh, if you regulate us, you'll chill innovation. That's precisely the argument that's being offered right now by the big tech firms to oppose legislative reform. And we don't have to accept it. And we should pressure our um, representatives to affect change. But that's sort of in the United States. I'll, I'll let Ariel talk about the, the, the Europeans and also the interesting things that are happening in the UK. Yeah, I think I very much agree, of course, with Maurice. Um, in, in the UK and in the EU, you do see um, greater change. Uh, and certainly when it comes to the digital economy, there is a feeling that things will change and hopefully there will be measures in place that will protect consumers and that can have an effect. So we have, uh, you can be carefully optimistic when it comes to how markets might look like in the future. But I do think that when it comes to innovation, um, there is still much that needs to be done. Uh, there is a certain level of uh, capture, of assumption, that innovation will just happen organically. And Maurice and I make the point in the book that this will just not happen. It simply doesn't happen. And the thing, if you ask if I'm optimistic or not, I'm optimistic in terms of some of the measures that are being discussed and are taken at the moment uh, in Europe and elsewhere. But I'm worried when I think about the ripple effects. I'm worried when I connect the dots between market power, control of ecosystems, profit motives, and the way that profits then affect the strategies of companies, the way profits affect uh, the way that our news uh, is being handled, society, politics, individual freedoms. So when it comes to the wider effects, I think all of us should worry. Uh, we're certainly not heading in the right direction when you look around us uh, and, and you look at how society evolved in recent years. And once you understand that all of this is fueled by very specific profit motives, it also gives you an insight as to where the solution might lie. So the book is How Big Tech Barons Smash Innovation and How to Strike Back. It's written by uh, Ariel Ezrachi and Maurice E. Stuckey, my guests, and published by Harper Business. Uh, but for now, Ariel, Maurice, uh, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. Take care now. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damien Marusic. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>